Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Quadcast, a brand new Yale Divinity School podcast where we reflect on the future of religion in conversation with a member of the Yale Divinity School faculty. I'm Emily Judd, a current graduate student, and we are joined today by Professor Teresa Berger, a leading expert in liturgical studies and Catholic theology. For the last four years, Professor Berger has studied how digital media fosters faith communities and religious practice. Her new book explores controversial religious practice in the digital realm. Professor Berger, thanks so much for being here for the inaugural episode. It's a pleasure. <laughs> uh, the first question I have for you is Christians are baptizing via the video conferencing app Skype, and Buddhists are meditating through the 3D virtual world of Second Life. Can you explain how religion and religious practices migrated from offline spaces to online? Essentially, Christian practices migrated from offline to online in the same way in which all our other practices have migrated from offline to online. So think about you waking up and checking the time or you waking up checking the weather, um, reading up on what your friends are doing. How did that happen? It feels as if it happened fairly naturally. but quickly also at the same time. But overall, um, a ton of practices, religious practices, Christian and other, I have focused mostly on Christian practices, have migrated without the churches saying, do this. Individual people have simply shifted Uh, the way they access not only the news and the weather and updates from their friends, but also the way they access the scriptures, the way they pray together, the way they engage with their faith communities from a brick-and-mortar approach, let's say, to digitally mediated practices. And so the World Wide Web was introduced in 1996 or so? A bit earlier, I think. But 1996 or 7, we already have the first very clear Christian practices um, mushrooming uh, in cyberspace. And it's not that any one church said, Let's go and do this. They are individual initiatives. People being curious, people uh, branching out into digital social space. And then we see, uh, not too much later, um, communities, religious communities, forming in ever-expanding ways, particularly once... Uh, Web 2.0 gets off the ground in 2005. That's really a point where these practices uh, grow exponentially and uh, their characteristics shape because the web is now a very different uh, entity from what it was in uh, Web 1.0. Oh, so it's much more interactive. The capacities have grown exponentially. And um, in 
many Christian communities, um, there is a steady uh, migration of faith practices uh, uh, online, not away from offline practices, but accompanying offline practices. And so what gets lost in the transfer from offline to online? There are constant changes, uh, technological changes, that will make some things that we now say, oh, they are definitely lost in the migration from offline to online, mute points. Uh, so while I was working on my book, I think this is the most concrete example, when I started off, it was very clear and an easy reference to say to people, look, one of the things that is lost in this transition from uh, practices of prayer offline to online is any olfactory uh, sense. So you cannot smell incense uh, in digital social space. So I was happily building an argument around that as a sort of prime example of what is uh, lost. Halfway through the book, it turns out that the technology has begun to be tested to also communicate smell in digital social space. And it's going to come probably via cartridges. So... Uh, um, what I'm telling you now, <laughs> namely that smell, uh, is lost in the migration, mm -hmm. uh, might not be true for that much longer. The, these are not stable realities. They are constantly evolving. What's, I think, important is not to hearken back to these uh, dualisms of 15, 20 years ago that basically say, Offline brick-and-mortar presence is real and online presence is virtual and the virtual translates into it's not real. Our thinking has shifted with the emergence of digital worlds. But in some ways, it's also gone back to very ancient Christian convictions of the church being more than just people who gather in the name of Jesus in the same room. Is God present in these digital spaces? Can God work through Wi-Fi? <laughs> and how does that work? <laughs> um, that question comes up uh, surprisingly often. I, um, I think as a theologian, I simply have to say... Um, on a basic theological level, the answer has to be yes, because we cannot limit God's omnipresence that we hold on to theologically um, by pixels, as if pixels are the one place that stop God from being present when God is everywhere else but not mediated uh, through pixels. And therefore, the online-offline divide also divides God's presence and absence. That's Theologically, that's not credible. Did any of these digital religious practices shock you? I shocked myself 
profoundly when um, I discovered through Facebook a bot that was put out um, by a Catholic organization, uh, a relief organization, um, and it offered essentially a conversation with Pope Francis. So being the curious researcher I am, I said, this is interesting. I'm going to engage with this bot, uh, Francis. It was authorized by Francis, so they, it, there was nothing illegal about the bot. So I sit at my computer and I say, hello, Pope Francis. And he says, I mean, he, I read, the bot, <laughs> the bot says, hello, Teresa, it I'm so glad that you chose to come and speak with me. What shall, what shall we speak about? And then you had various options. The social justice ministry of the church was one. Well, one was prayer. So, of course, I clicked on prayer. And the Pope says, the Pope bot writes, communicates, I'm so glad you chose that subject. Prayer is the most important subject for me. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is getting really interesting. And then the Pope says, the bot Pope says, Teresa, shall we have a moment of prayer together? And all I could do at that point was simply to bow down and engage <laughs> and engage in a moment of prayer with a Pope bot. Wow. And then the Pope bot gave me a blessing and that was it. And I sat in front of my computer afterwards and said to myself, I'm so moved. But what the hell just happened? I know this is a Pope bot. But it was a deeply moving and spiritual moment of prayer. Mm -hmm. So I surprised myself. Um, and you mentioned Pope Francis. A lot of religious leaders have digital media accounts. Do you, after your research, think that it's vital for church leaders to have social media or digital media presence in the 21st century? It obviously works very well for someone like Pope Francis. You have worked on his, studied his Twitter account. It gets quite a bit of uh, traffic. His Instagram account, while I was writing my book, I kept on having to update the numbers of his followers. And um, if you see how people engage with uh, that Instagram account and what they gravitate towards and the way in which these images that are the heart of Instagram communicate things much easier than a dogmatic text of five pages or 500 pages. Um, so I am not sure that in churches that don't have such a visible 
ministry of oversight uh, as the Roman Catholic Church has with the papacy, um, that every uh, leader of every little community would get a whole lot of traction from their Twitter and Instagram account. I think the leaders of churches that have a global reach already benefit from that more than the smaller communities will. Mm -hmm. We've talked so far about the benefits of digital media to religion, but one scholar, David Haskell, has suggested that the world of the internet follows the pattern of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In both the Garden of Eden and the digital world, there is the desire and appearance of beauty and perfection. The digital world provides a space for idealized self-presentation through social media profiles, and one of its purposes is to cultivate community. Yet, human nature and sin destroy those hopes um, for social media because sometimes it becomes a place where people attack each other. Do you tend to agree with this comparison? And from your research, do you think that the internet tends to unite people or does it tend to divide people when it comes to faith? This schema of... um of Haskell's, of uh, taking Genesis and mapping digital media onto a basic story of a good creation and a fall um, is is shorthand. I, I, I would argue that every, or I could argue that every single human creation and space have done exactly the same thing. They have positive potential and as often as not they end up uh, as very marred, destructive uh, spaces or instruments or so I think digital media stand in a long line of human creations that repeat similar patterns. That said, uh, digital media, because of the vast advances in technology, exacerbate, I think, some of the good and some of the really vicious potential that is always there in human beings coming together in in startling ways. And we have seen both over the years. I have I concentrated in my research mostly on positive examples um, to mainly to signal to people this is not Christians, that is, and people in charge in uh, religious institutions, that this isn't a space to be afraid of, but it needs a lot of thoughtful engagement. But I'm certainly not uh, ignorant of or not attentive to... uh, 
cyberspace also being an incredibly vicious and dangerous space. There are various profiles and websites that may falsely label themselves as experts of a certain religion, and then they proceed to express beliefs that can compromise the religion's authentic position. Is there any way to police these online false prophets? I wish I could easily say yes. I don't think it's any easier than policing your social security number. So once we manage to do that, maybe we'll manage to police other things too. But in digital social space, as in the rest of life, religious practices go in tandem with broader life practices. So if we cannot police basics of everyday life, how on earth can we police uh, religious practices? One of the questions that I had after taking two of your classes, Catholic Liturgy and the Theology of Vatican II, you were one of the many professors at Yale Divinity School. And I was wondering, what are the challenges of studying and investigating one's own faith? I think I would have answered that question very differently when I first began. When was that? I had a vibrant uh, faith experience in my late teens and then began to inquire seriously in terms of um, scholarly engagement in, in my early 20s. But I saw the dangers very vividly and was quite suspicious of what scholarly engagement might do to my faith, particularly when it came to reading the scriptures and then professors deconstructing what were the foundational and are the foundational stories of my faith. So I think I can still empathize with people for whom that struggle is present now. For myself, at some point, I said to myself, quite literally, look, if God and your faith can crumble because of some old German professors, it's not, it's not worth keeping. And if God is real and your faith is alive, fear not. Um, just remember never to let a day go by without living your faith, without prayer, without reaching to God. And then you can read all the scholarly stuff you want um, and it's all, I find it fascinating, but I don't find it threatening anymore. And you mentioned, obviously, you studied in Germany and you were born in Germany. Um, how did you end up at Yale Divinity School? I'm sure that's a very long answer, but um, I guess what what was the last step or before you came to Yale Divinity School? How did you decide? Well, this might sound very pious, but I spend a lot of time in prayer as well as studying um, what Yale 
was, what, the, what shaped the Divinity School, what the Institute of Sacred Music, where I work, holds, where my own sense of um, calling and scholarly interests lay. And in the end, in a very daring move, I think, I decided to pack up uh, and come here. Um, but it was very much a mixture between um, uh, scholarly interests that matched with... What were those? I think particularly for me, the richness of liturgical studies as it is uh, taught here. Uh, Yale Divinity School is the only place I know that has three people in this field. Normally, you might just have one or a half. Uh, but three is, is stunning. And then all the cognate fields we have here. So Christian art and architecture, um, the whole musical side, uh, both music history and the practices of sacred music, um, religion and literature. Those are all things that make my field um, thrive. So in that sense, um, the scholarly lure was, was very strong. And gifted students like you, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your insight. We hope to have you back. Thank you.